0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. And we're up to Hebrews chapter 5. And this has one of my favorite verses in it. Now we're going through to the beginning of chapter six because the first three verses of chapter six are really some of my favorite verses, and they really are the, the, the cap on what we're going to talk about tonight. And they, they are kind of the thrust of the whole book. They really kind of lead us into what the point is. And it's such a strong point for us as well. It, it really is important for us. We make the same mistake in different ways that the audience of Hebrews makes that the author is, is trying to correct. And so um, I'm excited about that. And I hope that you will be too once you hear it because it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing so here we come into hebrews 5 he's been talking about jesus so for the first five chapters he's really just very quick review he's told he's really been there's only been three main things that he's talked about so a lot of sub things but three main things the first thing is that jesus is god he talks about jesus jesus being god number two is that jesus is human so he talks about the fact that jesus is both god and human and the third thing he's really been talking about is that faith is the work that he's that he's calling us to he talks about how that the, the, the Israelites missed the promised land, not because they didn't do the right things, but because they didn't trust God. And he talks about how those who are not embracing the gospel will miss out on salvation, not because they're not doing the right things, but because they don't trust God, that he's already provided it and brought it for them. And so that's kind of been the thrust so far. And he's been showing them how, because he's writing to the Hebrews, he's specifically been showing them how everything that they've believed, uh, that that, that they cling to, they don't have to let that go. He's not asking them to suddenly change their whole worldview in that sense, but he is asking them to recognize that everything they believed was leading to this point, was leading to Jesus, and that because of that, now they should embrace the gospel as the fulfillment of their faith, just as the Israelites should embrace the promised land as the fulfillment of the promise that had been made to Abraham. And so that's the comparison he's been making. And then we come to Hebrews uh, 5.1, and he continues to talk about some of the Old Testament pictures, and he's specifically going to talk about the high priest tonight, and that's where he starts. He says, every high priest is selected from among the people, and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So he's setting up an analogy. He's not yet talking about Jesus. Not everything here is true of Jesus. Everything here is true of the high priest in the Old Testament. And he's setting up the analogy. And what it comes down to, the point that he's making at this point, is that high priests represent the people. So the high priest doesn't represent God to the people. I think it's really important to understand, this is what the author of Hebrews is saying here. That the high priest he may speak occasionally for god but what he's really doing his job even even more so than say a prophet who does speak many times for god the high priest job is to represent the people to god and so because of that there's certain factors that he points out the author of hebrews does that he points out are really important for the high priest so number one he says they're selected from among the people that may seem obvious to us but he's pointing out we don't select a high priest from the angels and the high priest is not selected from the animals. The high priest is selected from among the people. Why? Because he represents the people, right? It's just like we have representatives in our state government that are, or our federal government that are supposed to represent the people. And so the high priest is selected from among the people. They offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Part of their job is to bring that atonement, to, to bring things to represent the people. And as they make a sacrifice, that sacrifice they make represents all people, brings atonement to all of them. They are subject to weakness because they're selected from the people. They themselves understand the need for the sacrifice. They are weak and they are frail and they are human. They're not above people. So the priest is not above people. In fact, how could he represent the people if he was above people, right? That's part of the point of the high priest. And and then lastly, they are appointed to their role. So they are selected among the people and they're appointed to their role. It's not self-appointed. It's something that that, that comes from it. So what we see is that the high priest is really a servant. This is easy to miss, and it was even easy for the Jews to miss. And then even our, you know, as we think about pastors and things, sometimes we forget. This is the role that they've been given. The priest is to be a servant to the people. Not above the people, but to be from among the people. To to be gentle, because he understands what it is to be a people. and And to serve the people by offering the sacrifices on their behalf. So they don't have to do it themselves. And then he goes on. So he set up the analogy. The high priest represents the people. And he says, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. So this gets really confusing because, again, we're talking about God, right? But he's saying even as God, in in Philippians, Paul says this, that Jesus did not equate, um, uh, did not not see himself, uh, boy, i a like, Jesus did not equate his, his deity with God as something to be held on to, something to be grasped. He did not see his deity as something to be held on to, but he saw himself as taking on the form of men. doesn't mean Jesus isn't God and is an equal to God. It just means he willingly laid that aside, and the same thing is happening here. Christ is higher, more glorious than any high priest, but he didn't even take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. And this gets a little peculiar, but it's back to that idea of Trinity that we mentioned earlier that God is one God but he functions as three persons and this three persons in one being is completely something we've never seen so it's there is no perfect analogy but as we think about Jesus submitting to the Father that's what he's talking about here and this is gonna be important this is not just esoteric we're gonna get into why this makes a difference here in a little bit but 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 hang with me because we're getting in some some waters that are definitely can be a, a little bit complicated sometimes I know complicated waters mixed metaphor Anyway, he says this, but God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to come back to Melchizedek another week, so just hold that thought. That's a really important reference for the Hebrews, which we don't understand probably at all, um, or some of you might, but it would be easy not to. He's a very obscure individual in the Old Testament, only shows up in just a few verses. But we're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks when the author of Hebrews is going to dig into that more. But for now... He's talking about the fact just that Christ was appointed to be a high priest. You are a priest forever. You have become this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth. So, again, showing Jesus as he enacted on earth. This is different from who he is in heaven or how he responds, what his role is. But it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was... He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He's going to go on and say something about being made perfect, but let's back up. How can Jesus learn obedience? If he's God, he's never been disobedient, right? And Jesus never sinned. So how can he learn obedience? And what does it mean to be made perfect when you're already God? Well, we actually saw this already referenced in the second chapter of Hebrews. And this is the conundrum or the the amazing thing of the incarnation that the author of Hebrews is reminding us of again at this moment. That Jesus is God but he became human and he talked to us in that in that second chapter where he said he became a little lower than the angels even though he created the angels clearly he is above the angels he became a little lower than the angels in order to be like us and he became human and part of becoming human means learning something that God had never done before which is being submissive and being obedient right now there's a lot of discussion we can have in the Trinity about whether Jesus has always been submission throughout his throughout eternity That isn't relevant to me right now because, and that could be, it might not be. I don't understand. But what I do know is that this says that at the moment while he's on the earth, he learns an obedience that he's never experienced before. He learns a submission and a reverent submission that has to do with making him perfect. And what it means is not perfect because he's already God. He couldn't be made more perfect in that sense. But perfect to be what? A high priest. That's what we've been talking about. So this is the idea we've seen a few times already, but he's just reiterating it. That in order to be a high priest for us, he had to be a better representation of us. How can he represent us? That's the high priest's job, is to represent the people. Well, Jesus, just like, just like the high priest, I was spelled, just like the high priest had to be selected from among the people and appointed to it. So Jesus, in order to be the representative of the people also had to be selected from among the people and also had to be appointed to it. And so there's this humanity there's this humanity and there's this weakness, this frailty that Jesus learned uh, by making himself a human. And part of this, what he's emphasizing here, in chapter 2 he emphasizes kind of his weakness and his understanding of temptation. But here he's emphasizing his submission. See, there's a part of humanity, our role, our place in the universe is one of submission. We are not God. We do not get to make, we're not in control. We submit to God's will and we submit to God's control. And that's an aspect that Jesus learned when he walked the earth. There's this really amazing verse in the Gospels where Jesus says to somebody, I only do that which the Father tells me. That's an amazing statement for the God of the universe to say as he walks on earth. But in his role on the earth, that's what he did. He learned submission. Not that it was something he didn't want, Not that he had to be sort of disciplined into submission. It was 100% voluntary, but he'd never done it before in the way that he did it on earth. And so he learned obedience and he learned submission. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is not just that isn't that interesting, he did that. The point is that in order for Jesus to be our high priest, there's something about that that was necessary. Now, he doesn't explain exactly why, but it's part of that deeper magic. It's part of that, the way the universe functions That for some reason, for Jesus to represent us, he can only do so in a role of humble submission. I think part of it is just because that is our role, right? How can he represent us if he doesn't have that same role? Same thing, if we have a, you know, in in an ideal world, ideally, our our senators and our representatives and our congressmen, and even our presidents, but, but specifically the Congress, they're intended to represent us. And that doesn't mean that they're above us. They're supposed to be like us and from among us, and they're supposed to understand their place uh, as as having to submit to the same laws that we have to submit to, having to submit to the same authorities that we have to submit to. And that's what he's saying here, that Jesus, in order to be our high priest or represent us to God, had to take on a role of submission to God, even though he was God. Yes, it's all uh, incredibly, incredibly mysterious in one sense, Because the whole idea of God becoming man and being fully man and fully God is mysterious. It's easy for us to take it too quickly and too easily. But the author of Hebrews is pointing out just why it's important in this moment that the submission is part of what was relevant. It's part of what was important. So, So learning obedience doesn't mean that he was ever disobedient. It just means he had to learn what it looked like to be obedient, to be a submissive individual. And for God, this is a new experience. So these are really deep and strange waters. I get that. But he goes on. He says, son, though he was, right? Son, though he was, he was made perfect. So why does he say son, though he was? That's to remind us of his deity. Jesus' submission is 100% voluntary. And he reminds us his submission is not a matter of weakness or inferiority. Jesus doesn't submit to the Father because he's less than the Father. He is God. Jesus doesn't submit because... Uh, because of, he's weak, or weaker than God. He's God, <laughs> right? He submits because he chooses voluntarily to do so for us so that he can represent us to the, to the God, so that he can be like a high priest who understands what it means to be obedient, to be submissive, to, to walk and not be in control, to not be God. This is really the bottom line about Jesus being holy, fully human is there's a degree to which he chose to experience what it's like to not be God so that as he represents us before God, he knows what it is like to not be God. Only a truly, completely sovereign, completely powerful God could create a situation in which he could learn what it means to not be God, right? And that's an amazing, beautiful thing. So, he not only becomes a good high priest, because he's human and he can be a good high priest, but because he's also God, it goes on to say once perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation. So once he was able to represent us as the perfect priest and sacrifice, as he learned that obedience and submission, he was then able to become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So he not only reflects his submission to the Father, but he also has this place of authority as God. He is God. Became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of melchizedek there's that strange reference again and again this will come uh make even more sense when we come to that in chapter i think it's seven all right so we'll get there in a little bit all right but here's the thing if you're starting to feel a little bit like wow this is complicated this is this is too much for me it's fascinating that that is the the feeling you might be starting to have because the author of hebrews begins to worry about that with the people he's writing to in fact he begins to think you know what i may be going too far and before I can tell them about Melchizedek, because that's what he wants to do. He says he became a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he's about to launch into this analogy of Melchizedek. He gets to it in chapter 7. But before he gets to it, he interrupts himself here in chapter 5, and he interrupts himself with a parenthesis, and he says this. We have much to say about this. I really want to get into this high priest idea, he says. But it is hard to make it clear to you. So if you've felt like this, we've talked through this that I've struggled a little bit to explain how God can be man and God and all that, so is the author of Hebrews. He says, it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer even try to understand. <laughs> the word used here is literally dull. You're dull, like a butter knife, right? You're not You're not sharp, but it's also a willingness thing. You, you choose to be dull. You don't even try to understand. It's kind of a, an intentional, I'm just not gonna understand you because if I understand you, I might have to change something, right? So he says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so this is the thing. Even if the rest of this has gotten a little hazy for you, I want you to really dig in at this moment because this is such an important thing that's about to happen. The author of Hebrews says, you should be teachers, but you keep having to go back to the elementary truths. You're missing the the, the basic things. You can't even move forward. He's saying to them, it's time to grow up. And the reason this is important to us is because... It's because just like the author of Hebrews, sometimes we feel stuck, right? We feel like we also need to grow up. We wrestle with the same sins over and over and over again. Maybe we feel like we should be teaching someone, we should be mentoring someone, but we keep struggling with the same thing. You know, and it doesn't matter. You might be a pastor, you might be a teacher. I know, I know that we all have these areas that we just get so fed up within ourselves that we keep coming back to them over and over and over. Sometimes we feel stuck. Sometimes we feel like we're not going anywhere. Or maybe the gospel has... You know, our our Christian life has become kind of stale, and we're looking for the next big thing. What's the revelation? What's the next cause? What's the next thing that can give me some excitement and and kind of move me forward? Because I feel like I'm stalled. I feel like I'm just in the shallow waters, and I don't want to be in the shallow waters anymore. And the author of Hebrews says, I want to get deep, but you're not ready for that yet. But he says it's time to grow up. And what he does, what's really amazing, is that this leads to one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture the beginning of chapter 6, he is about to call them to, to, to the next level, right? To Judaism 101, uh, 707, that's not such a thing. To upper graduate level class. To and, and for us as Christians, we may be thinking too, what's he calling us to? That's exciting. We want to we take the next step. We want to level up, right? Everybody wants to level up. And so when we get to the beginning of chapter 6, he tells us what it is. And it is not too much to say. That the the answer to digging deep is here, in this next passage. That the the secret of a truly rich Christian life, that the key to everything, is in these next verses. And so you say, well, goodness, what is it? What is it? So let's dip into chapter 6 and see what it is. He says, abandon the elementary teachings. He says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings. And the word here is for abandon. It doesn't mean build on top of. It means, let's, let's abandon and move forward. He says, let's be move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And we say, amen, that is what we want. And then he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rights, laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. And so here's what, what happens. And this is so important. Hang with me here for a second. Because he says we need to move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And what's amazing is as Christians, right, we we go very directly to a certain position with this. There's only most of us, when we think about the elementary teachings about Christ, it's the Sunday school lessons we've heard. It's the things we heard. It's the way we were introduced to the gospel. When we first became Christians, we heard the gospel. And that's what is to us, the elementary teachings about Christ. That Christ was born in a manger, That he died on the cross for our sins, that he came back to life. And so we hear this passage and we think, well, those are the elementary teachings. And it confirms for us our worst fears, right? Our worst fears that we've missed out on something more. We think, well, I've just, I've been in the gospel, but there's, I need to add something to that. I need to go further than that. But see, here's the problem with that. The problem is that we're reading this upside down and backwards. So it's interesting to me that the actual Hebrew language is read uh, bottom to top and right to left. So for us, that's upside down and backwards, because this actual passage we read upside down and backwards. We're coming at it exactly from the wrong direction. And here's what I mean. See, we hear this, lay aside the elementary teachings about Christ, and the first thing we ever heard about Christ is the gospel. And when we think of Christ, we think of Jesus, because we know Jesus is Jesus Christ. But the word Christ is not a name, it's a title. And the title means Messiah. And the term Messiah was not new to the Hebrews. They believed in a Messiah long before Jesus walked the earth. They were waiting for a Messiah for thousands and thousands of years. The people that the author of Hebrews is writing to had no question that the Messiah was supposed to come. The question was whether Jesus was that Messiah. And so when he says, lay aside the elementary teachings about the Messiah, he's not talking about Jesus at all. He's saying the elementary teachings about the Messiah are what? They're the signposts, they're the roadmaps, they're the shadows, they're the pictures, they're Melchizedek. See, he can't get into the story of Melchizedek because Melchizedek is simply a picture of the Messiah to come, so he has to make sure they understand that before he can talk about it. He's pointing back to the law, to the Old Testament, to the covenants, to the ceremonies, to the rituals, to the high priest. The idea that the high priest and what he did was just a picture of the Messiah. The elementary teachings about the Messiah are those shadows and those pictures. So when he says to the Hebrews, lay aside, abandon, move on from the elementary teachings about the Messiah and be taken forward to maturity, he literally means move on from those shadows and pictures and embrace Jesus and the gospel. So you see how we're completely backwards because what we do is we think of the gospel as the starting point and then we're looking for something more and then we read this and we think oh the gospel is the starting point we need to move on to something more so we begin to look for works behaviors for laws for rules for regulations for principles for something that will that we can add to jesus that'll make us more mature but he's saying exactly the opposite to the hebrews He's saying you're relying on the laws, the principles, the rules, the formulas, the shadows, and the pictures for your maturity, but that's not maturity, that's milk. That's not solid food. The solid food is the gospel. Embrace the gospel. Embrace the righteousness that comes through the Messiah, and his name is Jesus. See. This is such good news for us because we do not understand that we are living at a time. Why do all the liter- the epistle writers call the time we're living in the last days? Did they get it wrong because it's been 2,000 years? No. They understood that after the moment the Messiah came, everything else was just the last chapter. It's just the end. We live at a moment when almost everything has been accomplished. <laughs> Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, does not say, now we can finally begin. He says, it is finished. From the Hebrew perspective, everything they've been waiting for for thousands of years, the author is telling them, has come. Move away from those beginnings and embrace the maturity of the gospel. And we have the gospel and we think there's something else. The author of Hebrews isn't saying move on to something more than Jesus. He's saying on to move on to more of Jesus. I think we, get lo- we forget this because the gospel, we've heard it so long. And, and the truth is, sometimes it feels shallow. But let me give you a picture about that that maybe can help you out. So let's say for a moment that you are when you're a child and you go into a swimming pool and you go into the shallow end of the pool, it may come up to here and it doesn't feel shallow. It feels very deep. But if, let's say that you went in the shallow end of the pool and then you grow up and you get older and you get taller, and suddenly the shallow end is only coming up to your knees. And suddenly the same swimming pool that seemed so deep to you before now begins to see shallow because you matured, but the logical answer if you want to get more of your body wet is not to get out of the swimming pool and look for a different body of water. The goal is to move into the deep end of the same pool. And this is how it is with us in the gospel. When we enter the gospel, we don't understand anything. And a lot of us enter the gospel simply for fire insurance, right? We just, we just want to be safe. But as we grow, we learn more and more about the glory of God and the glory of Jesus. We learn about this incredible deep cosmic plan that is the gospel. And we begin to realize that fire insurance is the shallowest aspect of what it is all about. But at that moment, we have a choice. Do we decide that the gospel itself is not deep enough and go look for a larger body of water? Or do we decide that we just need to move into the gospel more? Because the truth is this. The gospel is infinitely deep. It is an ocean of infinite, eternal magnitude. And it is the water, it is the air that we breathe. We are like fish who breathe the gospel water. And when we are standing half in it, and we're not immersed in it because we aren't plunging into the gospel, then we, don't feel in, we feel out of place. We feel like a fish out of water, and we struggle to breathe, and we struggle to live. And if we get out of the pool because we're feeling that discomfort and try to look for a deeper body of water, guess what happens? There is no deeper body of water. There was nothing as infinite as the eternal nature of God and this incredible cosmic plan of the gospel that he's created from before the beginning of time. A gospel which it says even the angels are impressed by. They've seen God do some amazing things, but they look at the redemption plan that God has for us and the universe, and they're amazed by it. But we take it for granted and start looking for other things. And what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to do is not to look for something else, not to get out of the pool and try to find something else to to make you feel like you're moving forward. He's saying if you want maturity, you move into the gospel. You go deeper, you immerse yourself in the pool of the gospel. That's what you do. You immerse yourself in the gospel. You stay committed to it, says the author of Hebrews, in many places in different ways. Keep clinging to that faith, right? Don't let anyone's heart become hardened. Keep clinging to that faith and trusting in the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, said Martin Luther famously. We need to immerse ourselves more and more in it. And sometimes it can be scary, just like immersing yourself in water. But it's not, because in reality, it's what we breathe. It's how we live. And our discomfort comes from trying to stay half in and half out, or trying to add something to it. Instead of immersing ourselves thoroughly, entirely, in the gospel waters. See, if the gospel feels shallow to you, it's not because you've explored all that there is. It's because you stopped at the shallow end of the pool. Wade in more. Meditate on the love of God from every angle. Immerse yourself in the depth of what an incredible cosmic plan the gospel is. See, the gospel is... An unbelievable plan of, of universal proportions. It's time to submerge. If you feel unsatisfied because your head is above the water, it's time to lose yourself in the gospel. And of course, if you lose yourself in the gospel, you find that's where you've belonged all along. And you'll find yourself. And if that sounds paradoxical, Jesus, he's the one who said it. Just go deeper and deeper into the gospel. That's what this passage means. Leave aside the elementary truths. Leave aside the works and the laws and the efforts and things that you think you have to do to to make yourself acceptable to God and immerse yourself in the righteousness that God provides through the blood of Christ. Immerse yourself in, in the simple devotion to Christ. Immerse yourself in the incredible, glorious grace of God, His love for you which knows no bounds. Paul says, if we could simply understand the height and depth and width and breadth of the love that God has for us, that we would be filled to the fullness of God. There is no better definition of maturity. To be filled to the fullness of God is to immerse yourself in the gospel. Not to look for ways to make God happier with you. Not to look for ways to make God love you more. Because God loves you as much as he ever can. Because he loves you infinitely. And that won't change. So that's what I want you to think about as you read the book of Hebrews and as you look at chapter 6 verse 1 what he's telling the Hebrews is you're acting like children because you aren't embracing the Messiah, you're clinging to the shadows and pictures and hints of it. Everything in our lives, every good principle, every good idea, every good philosophy, every key to success, every formula that seems to bring fruit, you know what they all are? They're just shadows and hints and reflections of the life that's in Jesus, of the gospel that is before us. The gospel is not shallow. The gospel is not a, a Sunday school lesson that you heard once that has no relevance to you anymore. It's not a story or a religion that loses traction as time goes forward because we grow more savvy. The truth is, if your savviness leads you away from the gospel, then you are like a child drinking the milk who needs solid food. And the solid food, the meat, is in the gospel. That's what we pursue. That's where we go. Jesus, the Messiah, that is the advanced level of Christianity. That is the key. That is the enrichment. That's all there is. Knowing him better, knowing him more, embracing the righteousness he brings you through his sacrifice on the cross, and laying aside all your other efforts, comes back to faith comes back to trusting that God has fulfilled what he said he would do. We stand at the promised land, and Jesus says, I am life. Do we accept that? Do we embrace that? Because that is maturity. Thank you. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at PastorMac, M-A-C underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope there's been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.